0: Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Wendy Gonover, author of the new book, The Peculiar Institution in the Making of Modern Psychiatry, 1840 to 1880, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Wendy Gonover, welcome to Working History. Thank you for having me. In broad brushstrokes, could you walk us through the development of the asylum in the United States in the decades before the Civil War?
1: Asylums in the United States developed in the primarily in the 19th century, there were um, a few colonial institutions and the roots of 19th century asylums are found in the 17th and 18th century asylums of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, And they kind of grow out of the Enlightenment and this idea that That human beings were perfectible through rationality, even those who seemed to be most irrational, those suffering from uh, mental illness or insanity, as it was called. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these were generally uh, hospitals that treated all comers. uh, So all range of disease, including insanity. Um, And it wasn't really until the 19th century that you see the creation of asylums that were exclusively for the treatment of uh, those patients deemed insane. And in the United States, the first hospital treating and accepting insane patients was the Pennsylvania Hospital, which opened in 1751. Mm -hmm. And it sort of recreated itself in 1844 as an asylum just outside the the city uh, for Uh, mentally ill patients exclusively. But before that, the very first hospital that was designated for the insane exclusively was in Virginia. And it opened in 1773, although it was first proposed in 1766, and it Mm -hmm. opened in Williamsburg, Virginia, Mm -hmm. Uh, it still exists. Mm -hmm. It's really the 19th century that you see like an explosion in the number of asylums, not just in the United States, but in continental Europe and and the U.K., so that by the 1850s there are in the U.S. 29 state asylums and several very well-known, very well-regarded private asylums as well. Mm
0: -hmm. How and why do notions and debates of slavery influence the development of the asylum in this particular moment that you're talking about in the United States in the 18, early early 19th century, 1830s, 40s, 50s?
1: Some of it, there, there are a couple of reasons. Some of it is just timing, mm-hmm. um, right? So the patients and the staff are, are you know, people of their time, they're products of their time, and it, the political debates surrounding slavery and abolition and the moral, a conundrum that it poses in churches and in, in public dialogue. You know, the patients and staff are, are a part of that before they enter the institution as well as while they're in the, the institution. So mm-hmm. they're exposed to it, they're thinking about it. It's part of their reflections, as even in some cases part of their, for some of them, delusions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the milieu that they're coming from. And then you also have an institution that even though there's broad social support that this is, uh, you know, asylums are serving what a perceived public need, they're not without controversy because you are depriving people of personal liberty. They do Mm -hmm. lose their rights Mm -hmm. uh, once they enter the asylum. They can't just check themselves out. Um, And so there's obviously a kind of a metaphoric parallel to the idea of slavery, uh, whether or not. Um, personal liberties can be deprived of of individuals and even whether or not these individuals should be continued to be regarded as fully human and Mm -hmm. fully capable uh, of participating um, as citizens in the country. Um, And so there's this parallel there, uh, the the depriving people of personal liberty when they enter, but then also once they're in the asylum, how best to treat them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, Whereas once it would have been considered socially acceptable to chain a, a so-called maniac. Now, in the 19th century, with the advent of moral therapy, as it was called, there's this idea that you don't do that, uh, mm-hmm. that, you, that you appeal to a person's rationality by being kind to them, by imposing a, a kind of light discipline in an orderly, peaceful environment, and that they will rise to the occasion and that you do not need to resort to sort of chains and what they called mechanical restraint. And you see similar debates about slavery, whether or not it is an institution that requires brute force to maintain Mm -hmm. or whether or not uh, you could be more paternalistic in your approach to coercing labor. The other issue is the reality of free blacks uh, and slaves in jails and on plantations who are exhibiting symptoms of mental illness or are disruptive and what to do for them Mm -hmm. um and how best to treat them and if they're going to be accepted into uh facilities where there are white clientele and if so is that going to turn off uh is that going to be unappealing to especially middle-class white
0: families Mm-hmm. and this is a particular challenge in in many ways for the focus of or for the uh, for the institution that's really one of the main focus of your book the Eastern lunatic Asylum of Virginia just by virtue of the fact of where it's located in in Williamsburg I'm wondering if you could, walk us through the um the Eastern Lunatic Asylum a little bit and um, we'll get into some particulars later, but could you talk a little bit about John Galt, John Minson Galt II, who was the superintendent of the Eastern Lunatic Asylum and how his approach to this institution in some ways deviated from norms of asylum administration and care elsewhere.
1: Sure. John Minsengalt was, you know, born and raised in Williamsburg. He did leave to go to the University of Pennsylvania, where he attended medical school, which was kind of unusual uh, mm-hmm. at the time. It certainly wasn't required of doctors. But it was, in a sense, a family business. He mm-hmm. had an aunt and uncle and a father, all family members who were involved in some way in the treatment of the patients at the hospital in, in Virginia. So when he inherited, essentially, the position in the 1840s, he was a young man, and it was probably an expectation that that is where he would ultimately work. And mm-hmm. in many ways, he was quite typical of other superintendents in this period. He was a founding member of the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane, AMSI. It's the organization that eventually became the American Psychiatric Association. Mm. So he was one of 13 original founders in 1844. Mm -hmm. Like these men, he was educated. He was, uh, you know, um, fairly elite in his class status. And he was very influenced by what he was reading uh, from England and from France, from the the writings of uh, Samuel Tuke and Philippe Pinel, um, the ideas of moral therapy that they espoused, uh, the idea that, that psychological or what they would call moral uh, influences co- could cause the physical effects that would be recognized as symptoms of insanity, mm-hmm. and that the best way to deal with that would be the creation of uh, this asylum where there would be kind of rational work routines. Uh, a kindness, peace, uh, give someone a chance to essentially recuperate from whatever it is that had caused them to to kind of go off the rails. And mm-hmm. so he was a participant to this. And he was a, a peer, although he was a bit younger um, than some of his other fo- co-founders. But he was from the South. And he was only one of two superintendents from the South. The other was from the Stanton Asylum in the western part of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And He was the only one who was fully committed to making sure uh, or he didn't have a problem with racial mixing on the wards, either Mm -hmm. in terms of patients that were accepted or in terms of employing slaves. And this made him a real outlier.
0: And before we talk a little more about the details of that, the 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 patients and also the patient care, could you just sort of quickly talk a little bit about what kinds of sources you tap to get to the story that you tell in your book? Uh, where did you find them? What kinds of things were you looking at? Um, because it's really, in, in some ways, it seems like it was hidden, very hidden research, but it's it's extraordinarily compelling to read.
1: Thank you. I really lucked out with the with the sources. They were in a storage closet of the patient library of the current hospital, mm-hmm. uh, and they hadn't been processed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I spent two years sort of going through them, first inventorying what was in there, um, trying to figure out, you know, who was writing and what what these were, and then eventually putting it together and cross-referencing it with what was already available at the uh, SWIM Special Collections at the College of William and Mary, mm-hmm. because there were some papers that had been donated previously when Colonial Williamsburg was created. So mm-hmm. the Rockefellers came and they funded the creation of Colonial Williamsburg and the public hospital that had been centrally located became the DeWitt Wallace Gallery of Art and the actual hospital moved a few miles out. And so at that time, some papers were collected and donated to special collections, but clearly not all of them. Mm -hmm. And so there were at least 30 linear feet of unprocessed materials in this storage closet uh, that I worked in. Mm -hmm. And it was everything. It ran the gamut from the doctor's notebooks to notes from the patients, artwork from the patients, letters from patient families, letters from jailers looking to uh, to um, commit a patients in their care, and uh, it just everything under the sun, and none of it in any particular order. And so it was fascinating to sort of get a bead on what it was, mm-hmm. and then begin to tell the stories and to sort of cross reference. And for some of it, you know, they were not. The kind of there's the public face, the 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 annual reports that asylums would put out, mm-hmm. and I would see sort of drafts of those that the the doctor Dr. Galt was creating, but then there were also the bits of scraps of paper that um, fellow staff members or patients would write, or you know if the doctor was thinking what slaves was he going to hire for that year, quickly jotting down their names with some money that he was going to pay them directly, so not just the contracts with their owners. Mm-hmm. So these sorts of things that probably weren't meant to be saved for posterity, um, but because of his very sudden death, were sort of scooped up into boxes where they were just left for Mm -hmm. me to find years later. And I I really just lucked into it. Someone, I don't even remember who now told me that there are these papers there. Mm -hmm. It was an unusual uh, environment for research because of course, first you have to go through training to be a volunteer at Mm -hmm. the asylum. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's no longer an asylum, but at the hospital. Because, you know, you are interacting with current patients and it is, you know, the TV was going very loudly a lot of the time and it is, you know, it's a it was a closet I was working in. It was not a very nice library with beautiful wooden tables right. and shelves, and, mm-hmm. you know, your typical archive. But it was also really insightful to be there at a currently functioning hospital and sort of witness the really compassionate caregiving that I saw mm-hmm. uh, from the two librarians who were there at the time, uh, Judy uh, Bell and Bruce Harrell, who were kind of my... Uh, mentors, mm-hmm. while I was there, and and everybody on on the staff, it really kind of broadened my impression of what uh, a public hospital could be.
0: That's really great, and it sounds like an absolute treasure trove, right? Those are the kinds of records that historians want—things that aren't made for the public but somehow get public. So that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the patients and the caregivers at Eastern Lunatic Asylum, ro- you know, walking us back to this moment in the early early to mid 19th century. Could you tell us a little bit about how patients came to be patients at Eastern Lunatic Asylum? Was the patient population relatively static, was it more free flowing? What was that process like? Well, so when you stay, can you clarify for me what you mean by static or free-flowing? Well, I guess my question is, uh, you know, is there a population of patients that would have been committed in one way or another, maybe you could talk about the process of that, to the to the institution, and then they would stay there for decades? Um, or was it sort of more short-term treatment where uh, a patient would come in for a set amount of time, and then they would go back home and perhaps come back and forth? Um, what, what was that like in that moment?
1: Uh, Good question. And the answer is is complicated. It's kind of both. Um, So, you know, the institution was conceived of part of the the appeal of moral therapy and the reason why there was this sort of broad consensus that these were good institutions or useful institutions is that they they did have an optimistic outlook. They did believe in the curability Mm -hmm. uh, of of insanity. And in fact, they barred um, those who were deemed to be incurable, meaning they had some sort of congenital defect or something Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. eyes of of those assessing them. And so they were optimistic, and the idea was that you would come in for a period of time and then leave, Mm -hmm. um, that you leave cured or improved. But clearly there were people for whom Leaving wasn't going to be an option, and it's that wasn't going to be an option not necessarily because they would be unable to function outside of the asylum. Because mm-hmm. I did encounter patients who you thought, Well, what are they even doing there? Mm-hmm. But it was going to be whether or not there was someone who a family who would be willing to sort of vouch for their care once they left, mm-hmm. or or were they going to continue to be wards of the state for other reasons, um, either because they were deemed to be incapable of self support, or perhaps. Because um, they were represented a, a threat to some of the other institutions of the state, mainly slavery,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so there were a, a, a groups of patients who would come in and then never leave, despite the optimism and the promise of, of curability. Uh, so they just lived there um, permanently. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that they were sort of locked down in the, in these cells. They, they sometimes had freedom of movement and they could leave the asylum grounds. There was mm. a case of a, a free black patient who was delivering uh, the newspaper mm. and he lived there he was admitted sometime in the 1820s and he, he just remained there uh, well until the end of the Civil War. And he would go come and go as he pleased and essentially um, well I, I, not as he pleased, but he would come and go for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he just essentially resided at, at the asylum. So were the, there were these patients who kind of occupied this liminal space. and then there were others for whom they might have wanted to leave, but they, they could not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so both, there were patients who came in, left, some of whom came back, um, you know, family members writing, saying this person is not better, please readmit him or her.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We can't handle their care anymore. Or in other cases, jailers saying, you know, you know, so and so he was there and this year, can you please bring him back? He's bad again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a kind of uh, gate that allowed for entrance and exit. And then there were those patients who just stayed, came, mm-hmm. never left.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I can't say there's any one thing that made the difference. There were, in some cases, maybe they were elderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and So the prospect for um, Im- improvement, if it was senility, was nil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or the uh, asylum administrators just didn't feel that they they wouldn't propose a threat in some way to society once they, they got out or just wasn't convinced that uh, that they were capable of self-support. Mm-hmm. In terms of how they entered, there were three ways. Um, patients entered from the th- their families, jails, and slave masters. Right, So only the slave masters could admit slaves to mm-hmm. the asylum because mm-hmm. they were responsible for paying uh, for that care. Okay, um, Jails... Admitted people who were arrested first for you know a variety of transgressions, disturbing the peace, uh, harm to someone else or self-harm. But in some ways, it come to the attention of local authorities. and then those local authorities used their that their local knowledge to determine whether this was a one-time problem or or something that wasn't going away and was consistent with what they understood to be mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third was families. And the families had a variety of attitudes uh, towards the hospital. In some cases, they saw it as as last resort, mm-hmm. um, that they had tried everything themselves, that they were no longer capable of caring for a loved one um, who had become intractable, or or they were felt that were it was a danger to them. And so they were looking for the hospital as a place to put that person. But in other cases, they had a more optimistic attitude themselves. And they thought, well, maybe they, my loved one can be cured mm-hmm. um, if he or she goes there for a while and then, and then released. Um, so it was those three, those were the three conduits to the asylum.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the really central aspects of your work is uh, how you tease out the ways in which race and gender functioned um, in terms both of committing patients to care, but also then in terms of diagnosis and treatment of underlying conditions and illness. So could you walk us through those things? I know that's a very big, broad catch-all question, but how did assumptions about race, and about gender function in this space of the asylum?
1: Yeah, um, it's a very good question. It was one of the most interesting and compelling questions. And please do interrupt me if there's something that you read that I'm not bringing up. Sure. Again, there's sort of the public face and then what actually goes on. Mm -hmm. So publicly, the asylum superintendent talked about race indirectly through talking about slavery and Mm -hmm. suggested that, and he was certainly not the only one who was sort of making this argument, Even though for much of his life, he was not a kind of pro-slavery ideologue, he did become more hardened in his views in the 1850s, as many white Virginians did. And he tried to suggest that slavery acted as a kind of antidote to developing insanity because, in his view of things, slaves were kept from the exciting discussions about politics or novelties in religion that would lead to excessive enthusiasm that could contribute to a, a breakdown or... Uh, They weren't able to be overly indulging in alcohol uh, or, or, you know, doing anything that was intemperate, essentially. So that slavery acted as as a way uh, with a kind of imposed a kind of discipline that was helpful or sanative Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time. That's the, the, the public argument. Um, At the same time, it's very clear that there are slaves coming in and they have been completely traumatized by the experience of seeing a loved one sold away or they have been violently attacked or raped. Um, And uh, so the asylum is dealing with the reality uh, uh, of 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 slave life Mm -hmm. and the violence that is um, a part of that, Mm -hmm. Uh, even as it is trying to create this sort of moral therapy, which creates a peaceful environment that ab- abstains from the use of coercive violence and uh, has some kind of moral coercion instead uh, to get to induce sane behavior or temperate behavior. There's this ideology about slavery, and then there's the reality of what the patients experience and, by, in consequence, what the administrators see when mm-hmm. they're treating patients. Mm-hmm. There was a belief, though, um, that uh, for free Blacks and for some slaves, that they were more prone to enthusiasm. Um, and so even though the superintendent says that that slaves were sort of kept from religious novelties or trends, it's uh, abundantly clear that that's not the case, that many are going to camp meetings, that many are participating in independent Black churches, and that their mode of worship uh, is um, enthusiastic, it's evangelical. It's transformative Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sometimes noisy Mm -hmm. and it is not um, adhering to kind of middle class propriety, either in terms of behavior, but also in terms of belief and particularly abolition Mm -hmm. and the abolitionist politics that were a part of the 19th century religion.
0: And just to break in before uh, you talk a little bit about about gender as well, did slave owners use the asylum as a disciplinary tool? Or was it really a space in which individuals who did have, as you as you discussed, you know, myriad problems, many of them coming out of the experience of slavery themselves, going there for treatment?
1: I suppose the answer would be it depends, or both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were certainly I found examples. There's an example of a man who wants to commit his slave who he feels is ungovernable because she is saying that she's free mm-hmm. uh, and would will not be subject to his discipline. and he's whip, you know, he's whipping her, and he says that calms her, but he also thinks that she might be partially insane. and so therefore, the asylum is, is the place for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can say for sure, well, that's disciplinary. Sure. He's looking to change the way that she speaks to him and the way that she interacts with him. At the same time, he might really believe that she must be delusional if she thinks she's free. Mm-hmm. Um the thing, though, to bear in mind is that they have to pay for this care. Okay. Um, and so even though it's not exorbitant, particularly if they are large and wealthy slave owners, they still have to, you know, provide out-of-pocket care. It may be a way to get somebody who's disruptive off the plantation mm-hmm. and out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. But I do see other instances where, you know, like a, a slave who had become perhaps senile and was a a burden to keep, could no longer provide service, um, but that the family still felt some kind of sense of obligation uh, to care for that slave and Mm -hmm. not just abandon them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that they might be looking for a place for convalescence, maybe that convalescence permanent or, or temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really runs the gamut in terms of, of attitudes. So it is, is both disciplinary and they're in that they're looking for a change, um, in a way that they could, will not be imposed upon. And that may even give them a sense of their own beneficence because mm-hmm. they're willing to pay for medical care. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, it is it's not the most effective tool for discipline because you have to pay for it.
0: Sure. OK, that's good clarification. Let's talk a little bit about uh, gender as well in terms of that being another factor that will shape diagnosis, treatment, committing patients to care and, and so forth.
1: Yeah, particularly the sort of intersectional aspects. Right. of Right. Yes. Um, most of the patients at Eastern Lunatic Asylum, anyway, were men. There were Men always outnumbered women. I know okay. this isn't the case for some other asylums, but I think this is partly because uh, families were less willing to commit women to the care of strangers. Uh, okay. They were concerned, white women anyway, they mm-hmm. were concerned about the risks to their to their reputation to their to to their you know would, would they be attacked would they engage in behavior that would compromise their reputations
2: mm-hmm. and so there was
1: a an unwillingness to commit on on some level if you if you are were a family of means uh, you would prefer to do that provide that care at home mm-hmm. privately mm-hmm.
2: Even so, the number of women
1: did on the wards did grow over the course of the 19th century. Um, and not every family was able to afford private care. Um, and in some cases, these women were behaving in ways in public that were compromising their, uh, the ideal of femininity. Right, So they were having children out of wedlock or they were running away from their, fa- their families. Um, and so they were already um, not adhering to the strictures that were required of of womanhood in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And then there were also significant numbers of of African-American women who were uh, patients as well, both slaves and free blacks. And uh, for those women... Uh, they were there for many of the s- same reasons. They had been, you know, traumatized by some kind of relationship. Uh, there was a high levels of sexual violence that that were also a conduit to the a- asylum for, for black and white women, and most especially for, for black women. But that sexual violence wasn't necessarily recognized by the asylum's mm-hmm. uh, doctor or staff as the reason they were there. Instead, the behaviors that were often the result of this trauma were um, viewed as somehow uh, innate and particular to women's organs, their sexual organs Mm -hmm. and their reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. And so what's kind of ironic is that you've got, uh, in general, asylum medicine of the 19th century is looking at environmental explanations, psychological explanations, moral explanations. But when it comes to women's acting out um, and women's trauma, instead there they hyper focus on the uterus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they look for ways in which menstruation might be uh, a factor in um, a women's irregular behavior. And they essentially choose to ignore some of the real social causes that are behind women landing in, in the asylum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the dynamic between black and white women,
2: The hospital
1: staff tend to view the enthusiasm of of black women as natural um, and as particular to them. And when they see it in white women, even in equal numbers, they ignore it and they create sort of a separation. So there's mixed, racially mixed wards. Mm -hmm. But in the 1850s, uh, Superintendent Galt imposes a separation on black women and white women, either in terms of the nature of the work that they do while Mm -hmm. they're there, Mm -hmm. their residence. And the sort of expectation for what um, proper decorum will be for black women versus white women.
0: Mm, okay. And uh, just to clarify, so in terms of treatment, part of treatment for these patients oftentimes is work. Is that right? Um, in yes. the asylum and things like what, cleaning or cooking or what what does that entail? So it is a
1: reflection of of society outside of okay. the asylum in uh-huh. preparation for release. In theory, so black women will be assigned work in the kitchen. They'll be assigned um, cooking or cleaning vegetables. They'll be assigned laundry work, and they'll uh-huh. be assigned scrubbing. Okay. White women will be assigned sewing. Okay. Um, and uh, for men, it really depends upon your your class. So if you're from a professional class, uh, then you we'll maybe do some light working in a workshop, some some, maybe some woodwork. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a shoe shop, there is a tailoring. uh, But if you're from a laboring class, you're going to be picking growing and picking the fruits and vegetables that are going to feed yourself and your fellow patients. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. One of the things I found most interesting about your book is that it really is a story about work in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a story about patients working, but it's also a story about slave labor and how that functions within the context of this development of of the asylum. And you write in the book that slave labor, and I'm quoting here, was the bedrock upon which the entire edifice was built, the entire edifice of the Eastern Lunatic Asylum. So could you walk us through the ways that this was true? Um, a, A couple of questions related to that day to day. What did slaves, what did slave attendants at the Eastern Lunatic Asylum do, and what was that racial dynamic like for yeah. you know enslaved attendants attending, as you as you mentioned you know briefly attending free white patients in all kinds of very intimate circumstances?
1: Yeah, I think it was highly unusual. So basically, you know, the, your day the day would begin for enslaved attendants, and I should say that all of the attendants were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, okay. There, okay. Yeah. So there were a few um, white staff members, and increasingly more after the 1850s, but all of the the day-to-day attendance on patients was done by slaves Mm -hmm. at Eastern Lunatic Asylum. And the day would begin before dawn when they would get up and they would make the breakfast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in some cases, you're talking about, you know, by the middle of the, by the 1850s, you're talking about over 300 to 400 patients. Mm -hmm. So making breakfast for all of them And then delivering the breakfast and then seeing to the patients getting dressed and emptying out their chamber pots, cleaning up their rooms, taking them to their various locations so that they would have some kind of occupation. And again, the occupation was supposed to be a kind of healthful discipline and a way to keep their minds from turning inwardly morbid, keep Mm -hmm. them occupied, Mm -hmm. keep them doing something. So take them there and then supervise them once they were doing it. And so there would be enslaved attendants supervising the men who were working in the shoe shop or supervising the men who are out uh, in the, the gardens or working with carpentry. Uh, and for many of the uh, women patients, it was, so it would be a white woman matron who would be sewing with them. But sometimes there would be enslaved female uh, attendants who were it, well, all of them would be doing their laundry, which was a daily occurrence, because mm-hmm. you can imagine how much, much laundry there would be for 400 patients and not to mention cleaning up all of the dishes uh, after the breakfast right. um, and the cutlery and counting it to make sure it was all returned, um, but they would be there supervising patients as they moved from place to place. Or if a patient had permission to go and stroll around the town of Williamsburg, that patient would sometimes be accompanied uh, by an enslaved attendant going with him or her. And so they were there throughout the day to keep the patients occupied, to keep them from harming themselves and others, um, and to attend to their their, their needs. They also, this surprised me, they administered medicine. Mm -hmm. So they would administer Mm -hmm. morphine. um, And in some cases, they were forcing the patients to take the morphine on doctor's orders. Mm -hmm. They would also sometimes force feed uh, patients who were refusing nourishment. Um, And so they were involved in these sort of physical and psychological altercations or struggle, power struggles with patients, uh, which gave them, I think, an unusual amount of, of power. Because although it was not uncommon for there to be, for example, enslaved nurses in families, uh, in a family environment, you are answerable to the family. Mm -hmm. But in a hospital environment, you are not answerable to the patient who has lost his or her rights uh, as a citizen, right? You are answerable only to the doctor who has, has given you this authority. And the doctor understood that sometimes patients would cast aspersions or create negative rumors or even false stories about the enslaved attendants. And so the doctor had to choose to believe the attendants, and he often did, over the patients, the accounts of the patients um, who were complaining inordinately, in his view, about some of the enslaved attendants. Mm -hmm. They would also have to make the lunch, fix the lunch, deliver the lunch. Right. You know, And
2: then shave the
1: patients who needed shaving. If there were patients who were prescribed water baths, um, either sort of a soothing warm bath or in some cases a kind of disciplinary cold douche, um, they would be there to administer that too. Physically seize the patient and, and, and administer them and then the patient would be naked and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would have to cart that water, drain that water. Uh, and then dinner time and dusk was a particularly, I talk about how it was a particularly stressful time because the light was dwindling and each patient had to be returned to his or her room. In some cases, the clothing of the patient had to be taken from them so that they wouldn't escape. And they'd have to be put in the rooms, the doors locked, um, and the, the clothing removed. Uh, and then, you know, the the dinner served, prepared, served, cleaned up. Uh, an extraordinary amount of work when you think about what mm-hmm. an antebellum kitchen looked like mm-hmm. um, and then if there was any kind of problem uh, where the patient was maybe very excited for the evening or there was concerns that that patient would be suicidal a, a, sometimes an enslaved attendant would be instructed to sleep in the room with the patient or to keep an eye on them mm-hmm. and you know they were they were in a many sense the the doctor would would ha- converse. he made a point of conversing with enslaved attendants about each case because he believed that it got them invested in the care mm-hmm. um, of the patient and that they would be more inclined to, to pay attention to details that he would need to know, like whether or not a female patient was menstruating or whether or not a patient had passed worms in the night or if they'd had a kind of fit of hysterics. So this information, you know, they were the ones who were the closest to the patients and could observe them most closely. And provide that valuable information to the doctor.
0: Mm -hmm. And what do we know about the personal lives of the enslaved individuals who labored at Eastern Lunatic Asylum? Where did they come from? Were they married? Did they have families? What did you learn in the course of your research?
1: Uh, More than I expected to, but not as much as I wish I could know. Like anybody who sort of you know is looking at slaves, we don't. I don't have firsthand accounts by them. um, You know, they weren't writing their own notes, so you're learning about them through the eyes of of white staff or doctors. Um, And so they are mediated sources. But nevertheless, you know, sometimes I I describe it as a hurried pragmatism. There was so much to do at the asylum that um, inevitably there would be information that would would come through that could give you a a portrait of who they were and what their attitude was about their work towards Mm -hmm. one another and towards the patients. And Mm There were a couple married couples who were living and working at the asylum. The thing that struck me is that even though there were laws that were supposed to prohibit the constant rehiring of the same individuals to prevent nepotism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because of course that the money would go to the owner, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you didn't want to have. In theory, you didn't want people who were already invested and had a job at the asylum to be constantly getting money every year for the the, hire, the yearly hiring of their slaves. But even so, um, despite this law, there were th- the counter to that is that you also don't want to have to constantly retrain new people to do an already very difficult job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was an incentive to keep the same people if they proved themselves to be worthy employees, if you will. And so there were many people who were hired for multiple years, um, and they they formed a kind of long-term. Uh, I call it the bedrock uh, of the institution of uh, of providing the care to to the patients, um, and they were there for for many many years. So yeah. some of them were married. Most of them were were uh, they were local, mm-hmm. um, and, and by local I don't mean just to Williamsburg. I mean surrounding counties. Mm-hmm. Um, a significant number would be hired annually. Um, so they were coming from elsewhere, nearby plantations, but they they did not necessarily have a, a connection to the asylum prior to their own hire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, they would be hired on these yearly contracts. The advantage would be, you know, uh, to asylum work would be that in addition to the wages that were paid to the masters, to the owners, very often the slaves who performed the best in the eyes of the superintendent were paid cash directly from the superintendent as a kind of recognition for just how difficult the work was hmm. and for a job well done. And the sums were not insignificant. It was sometimes 10% of the total fee for the year. Hmm. Um, and that was given directly to the slave himself or, or herself. Uh-huh. Um. So some of them were married. Some of them lived with spouses who also worked at the asylum. Others had spouses who lived on nearby plantations. Mm-hmm. And Some had children, even though the asylum was very clear that it preferred to hire women who did not have dependents that they would have to care for because the idea would, you know, the concern was that they were going to have to give attention to young children and that would be time and and energy taken from the care that they were supposed to be providing to patients. But nevertheless, they had to be somewhat flexible, particularly for um, enslaved staff who had shown themselves to be very diligent and, and attentive attendance. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were children living at the asylum with their enslaved mothers. Initially, before Galt arrived on the scene in the 1840s, very often the the slaves were able to go home um, to their own families. But when uh, Galt uh, started to make these changes and try to initiate moral care at Eastern Lunatic Asylum, he insisted that slaves sleep on the premises. Mm -hmm. Um, that they be there all, the, that there be someone there constantly to attend to the to the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the men were given sort of rotating passes to go off and visit their families. Not so the women. Mm-hmm. Um, the women were there all the time, and they w- were constantly employed in um, tasks with a pretty high degree of drudgery. But they had kind of uh, also a kind of I would imagine a kind of community that emerged between them you know, for, for people who worked for many, many years together, mm-hmm. um, they knew each other extremely well. And in some cases, you know, for the patients who had come in and then never left, uh, particularly some of the free black patients, they were working alongside uh, the enslaved attendants and in many ways kind of became de facto enslaved attendants themselves, caring mm-hmm. for convalescent mm-hmm. patients, working on cleaning up the laundry. Um, and so th- that was also not an unusual occurrence. Right.
0: How did the administ- the administration and the treatment of patients at Eastern Lunatic Asylum fundamentally alter during the Civil War, and then what happens during Reconstruction? Could you give us a sense of you know what happens in the in war and then what happens after in the aftermath?
1: Um, well, as you might expect, the the war kind of throws everything into chaos because mm-hmm. Williamsburg is in, an, in a, a Union occupied zone. So after the Battle of Williamsburg in eighteen sixty two, it, it becomes a kind of shifting boundary between the Union forces and the Confederate forces. The first thing that happens is that Galt overdoses on laudanum.
0: Uh, he is,
1: uh, had been struggling with an opiate addiction for some time and uh, either intentionally or unintentionally took an overdose and died.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so the the question that is immediate is who is in charge of this institution? Uh, the Union Army uh, appoints someone with no experience. And there's a, a lot of kind of moving back and forth for who is responsible for this state institution now that the state is in, is in chaos, is mm-hmm. in war.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it goes back and forth between federal forces. And um, interestingly, though, even when the Confederate were able to push back the Union line, they never wanted to uh, assume responsibility for the hospital Mm. um, because of the demand for
2: resources Mm -hmm.
1: uh, that would impose upon them. So even when they are pushing back uh, the union periodically and in some cases capturing um, some of the enslaved attendants and forcing them to come back to Richmond, presumably to work in the hospitals there,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, because an enslaved attendant with experience in a hospital would have been a valuable commodity, um, a valuable employee, they never t- t- take it over. Uh, and so it is primarily the federal federal money that supports the hospital during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Even so, um, it is a period of general decline because obviously the, the support of a hospital is not the top priority uh, of the moment. Um, and then there's also the uncertainty about who is in charge and for how long. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some of the white uh, staff, they see the enslaved staff with whom they've been working for many years as insubordinate during mm-hmm. this period, especially mm-hmm. after the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation doesn't actually liberate those slaves who are in territories that are under federal control, mm-hmm. um, but it does bring up the question and make it seem imminent, the, the prospect of, of liberation, of emancipation. Uh, my own perspective is that, uh, that they, it is, the white staff who are actually kind of insubordinate in this period, um, and that they, they are not aware of just how challenging it is for the enslaved staff or African American staff to attend to the patients when there is so little money coming into the asylum. It's completely unclear the chain of command and who is responsible for what, and they are running the risk of capture and uh, relocation to forcible relocation to Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of chaotic. The care decline, certainly the the records decline. Mm-hmm. so there isn't as much detail about what's happening on a daily basis and who is who is doing the the providing of care. And in some cases, the there's no refurbishment of clothing. Um, and there are reports that patients are near to starving um, at various points, even when they're being rationed by the the Union Army. Because there's just not an abundance of food and material provisions. There's no more medication coming in because they're you know even before the Union occupation there had been a blockade that prohibited the superintendent from getting medication and he was giving it liberally to Confederate forces.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know by the time the war ends there are reports of sort of patients in tatters, un- uh, unable to kind of go out in public because their clothing is so threadbare. There are reports that there are increasing numbers of um, deaths because of infectious disease, you know, people being confined in close quarters, and just general disruptions. At one point, there's a a kind of invasion, a temporary invasion of the Confederate forces, and patients are, it's happening on the grounds of the asylum, where Mm -hmm. patients are like watching them, and a couple of them disappear in Mm -hmm. the melee with no accountability as to where
0: they ultimately went. So real chaos. Right. And so what happens then during Reconstruction? Because we see the asylum becoming more regimented again, but with significant changes. Is that right? Yeah, really
1: significant changes. And again, this was a part of the narrative that surprised me as well. Just to backtrack a little bit, one of the things that I said that made Galt an outlier is that he was not offended by the prospect of, of racial commingling on the wards, and that this didn't bother him but his fellow colleagues in the professional colleagues in the association did not agree with him ab- about this and they were very critical of of him and they felt that it, um, it was a, a sign that it was a backward institution that they that it didn't have racially segregated wards mm-hmm. um, to them it was as logical as making sure that there were different wards for men and women and so partly out of necessity And partly out of principle, he also began to think about ways um, that the asylum could be improved upon. Because of course, the practical problem with accepting free blacks and slaves as patients is that increasing numbers, you know, paid patients, private patients, their families paid the most amount of money. And so per capita to care for someone when the state is only willing to pay a fraction uh, for a, a black. A free black patient that they are for a, a white indigent patient. That means you have less money annually to attend to an increasing number of patients, and so it creates a kind of financial compression that makes it hard to function. And so he began to experiment outpatient care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the idea that, for example, there's a, a free black patient who was admitted, and eventually he decided that she was well enough that she could go work um, for a family. Uh, in Williamsburg and be their cook. And I mentioned previously that there was a a free black patient who delivered the newspaper and then would come home to the asylum at night. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he begins to sort of toy with this idea that maybe community care is the way to go and that the asylum can kind of function as a place where people can come, they can come back to it if they are not able to um, behave in acceptable ways, or if they begin to exhibit, disruptions be, disruptive behavior um, or symptoms of their illness mm-hmm. recur and he's never able to sort of do this to the extent that he he wants to um, but it's an idea that he actually publicizes and it's one that he you know he reads a little bit about other examples particularly of Giel in Belgium mm-hmm. uh, which was had started as a kind of community it had started as a kind of Catholic pilgrimage place and then became a kind of communal Care model, but it was one that was really panned by most um, asylum physicians, and especially in in the U.S., where it seemed implausible, and it, and it seemed like a, a an affront to everything that professional doctors had been trying to build. They're trying to you know shore up their credibility as as promoters of asylums and be entrusted with public funds to create all of these public asylums uh, where patients are supposed to be getting a different quality of care a professional medical care that they can't get at home mm-hmm. so to suggest that, that actually doctors aren't needed and the best solution might be community care is in a, a way to kind of undermine the professional credibility so i really feel that the example of slaves hiring out and the fact that the asylum at, in williamsburg hired out slave labor to function kind of provided the impetus for him to think about this in terms of patients and what mm-hmm. patients might be interested to do in the community and, and how best to, to provide their care. So for practical reasons and for reasons of principle, he has these ideas that, that are very unpopular about outpatient care.
2: Mm-hmm. So why
1: do I go into this lengthy program of- to answer the question about after the Civil War, after Galt is gone? In part, it's because what happens is that the the physicians who had always been critical of racially mixed wards lobby behind the scenes to, to to get those patients, some of whom have lived for more than 20 years in the Williamsburg Asylum, into their own facility, uh, mm-hmm. a kind of racially segregated facility. Rather than being a kind of place that the administrators of these newly created segregated hospitals for African Americans, they're not African American themselves. They are white.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and they immediately abandon any idea, even of moral care and of creating a place of peace and repose. They are really carceral institutions. They are really a kind of plantation because the patients grow their own food and uh, jail, in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not curative institutions, they are carceral institutions. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's
1: from the get-go. And so it is actually, and quite ironically, white physicians and asylum advocates like Dorothy Dix, actually, um, who intercede with politicians, coupled with the kind of racial animosity that you see in the South uh, after the, the, the loss of the Civil War, Create these very punishing institutions for African Americans exclusively that abandon even the pretense of of moral care, um, and so separate institutions get created and they begin to bring in at extraordinary numbers the the patient population explodes for African American patients in ways that are defy reasonable understanding of who actually needs the care. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they grow at an extraordinary rate. And they are not a kind of representation of utopian ideals about the perfectibility of human beings, but they are about making sure that African-Americans aren't allowed to move freely about the the county and that anybody who is deemed a threat is is locked away and dealt with and loses their right to vote. Because of course, once you're in the asylum, you can't vote.
0: Right. Before we wrap up, Do you see any broader impacts or particularly important takeaways from this development of psychiatric diagnosis and care in Tidewater, Virginia, in the 19th century for the development of the practice in in future or even for today?
1: That's a really tricky question, because, of course, my book ends in 1880, and there
0: are a lot of years
1: intervening between then and now and a lot of changes. Right. Um, I do think that there are some things that, that are worth pointing out, um, and I'm certainly not the only person to, to point them out. And the first would be just to pay attention to the racial dynamics of, of psychiatry. So. There's now a movement to get the police to recognize neurodiversity and signs of mental illness in minority patients so that they don't escalate situations, right? So mm-hmm. we know that bias can can make people not sort of see someone who's called, you know, because they're in distress, a family member who's called and, and saying, you know, my my brother, my cousin is acting erratically and is maybe a threat to me and myself, but please, he's ill, help him, not hurt him. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see... That You know, attention to the racial dynamics uh, uh, in training police to respond to these distress calls for mentally ill and neurodiverse people, that matters. The other way that we see paying attention to racial dynamics matters is because significant numbers of people, when they encounter psychiatry now, they encounter it in jail. And that's not so dissimilar from the 1840s mm-hmm. or the 1830s prior to the construction of these asylums, you know, and jail is not the ideal environment in which to provide psychiatric care, because in addition to whatever issue someone comes into the jail with, just being incarcerated alone is traumatic and can can exacerbate existing conditions or create new ones. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at disproportionately um, poor and African-American people encountering psychiatry in jails exclusively, that's that's not ideal, um, the third way,
2: and
1: this is where it gets kind of tricky, is we talk about the deinstitutionalization of the 1950s and 60s and the, and the move to community care and the ways in which it wasn't fully funded. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it didn't ever take off in the way that we had hoped, um, so that we still perceive it as a problem and there are still large numbers of people with mental disorders or mental illnesses in jails, um, rather than getting medical treatment in hospitals or asylums. I think it's not a coincidence that the moment in which institutions sort of lost their optimism and became pessimistic places to keep people rather than cure people or offer them respite until they were able to then get their you know feet on the ground and, and go back out into the community, it, it's not a coincidence that this is happening at the moment in which who is a patient expands dramatically and you see larger numbers of African-American people coming into um, institutions that are created specifically for them. And the, the public will to fund these and to fund community care raises an element in that and mm-hmm. that we need to pay attention to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that leaves us uh, with some important things to think about as we wrap up. Uh, Wendy Gonover, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thanks again to Wendy Gonover for joining us today to discuss her book, The Peculiar Institution and the Making of Modern Psychiatry. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.